for our practice of infant baptism. And so it, it shouldn't come as a surprise that many people are, um, are coming into this and don't have a category for what we're doing, and that's okay. So we talked about history, we talked about context. The second week we talked about the mode of baptism, um, and what I tried to do there was just defeat the claim that um, immersion is the exclusive mode of baptism, which is the Baptist claim that, um, that only immersion is the valid form of baptism. I try to, I try to show that from Scripture that that can't be the case. Um, also um, showing why, from Scripture, why we, we practice the way, the, the mode we practice. Last week, we talked about to whom should baptism be administered, and that's where I did my best in 45 minutes to, to give a defense for why, why we apply the sign to infants. So this week, I wanted to leave an opportunity for, to answer questions. And um, I didn't want to, just for the size of the crowd and, and all of that, I didn't want to just raise your hand, ask a question. Um, I, wanted to, I wanted to give you an opportunity, I said this last week, to email me questions throughout the week that, uh, that I can answer. And, um, and so that, that was great. Um, I, I did receive great questions. I thank you for all of you who sent the questions. I'm, I'm going to say up front that I am not going to be able to answer all the questions that were asked of me. Um, if your question did not get answered, um, does not get answered today, and you really, really want an answer, um, just resend that email, and um, I'll take a couple minutes and, and write a paragraph as best I can and, um, and hope, hopefully answer it. But I hope to address um, what I saw, what I received is what I thought were the most significant questions. And I've got a long list, and what's, what's, what's frustrating about do, this format is I just don't know how long this is going to take me. So I don't know if I'm going to be able to get through even all the questions I have. I'm going to do my best. But if I don't, um, then, like I said, if your question didn't get answered, uh, shoot me an email and, and we can dialogue that way or get together or whatever. Um, I've, I've kind of placed them in order of, of what I think are significance, meaning I think these are really important questions that need to be answered. Um, and uh, the first one um, nobody sent it to me. And so I'm going to answer a question that nobody sent, which kind of makes me a little nervous. Um, because, um, because it is very significant, but what makes me nervous is I feel like for the next 10 minutes, and this is probably, I think, the most significant question, for the next 10 minutes I'm, I might talk about stuff that nobody is really understands what I'm talking about. So you're just going to have to deal with that because I want it to be on the recording uh, for people. Um, <laughs> So if you have no idea what I'm talking about and I further confuse you, I'm sorry. Just, just hang with me and then we'll get to some more stuff. But, but the first question I want to answer um, is the Jeremiah 31 question, um, which is I, I think is the most important question. Um, last week I ended basically by saying this. Um, Baptists say I'm not satisfied unless I see a command, a divine command, to baptize children. That command is not nowhere found in the New Testament, therefore I'm not going to practice it. And I countered that by saying, we have a divine command from God to apply the sign of the covenant to our children. That is, that is explicit. And I'm going to play, apply the same line of questioning to anybody who, who um, doesn't agree with our practice. I want a divine command too. I want a command from God that we should stop doing that. I want a command from God that says, um, thou shalt no longer apply the sign of the covenant to our children. I want to thus saith the Lord. I don't see in the New Testament. The New Testament is um, glaringly silent, which I think is a great argument for our practice. 
And even it seems as though the practice is continuing in the New Testament. I ended that um, way. Um, here is the answer to that question, okay? Um, nobody sent me a question, so maybe I, I, I might be doing myself harm by giving you... Um, I'm going to give you the best Reformed Baptist answer out there, okay? It's hard. The, the, the struggle is, for, and we talked about this last week, if you're not dispensational. If you're dispensational, it's easy, okay? It's very easy. This is a parenthesis in, in history. This is another story besides Israel, and so we're just going to do what we see there, and, and that, that's Believer's Baptism. That's all we're going to do. There's no connection in, in any real sense. That's easy, but for, for Reformed Baptists, who, have, who see a connection, who see it as one story, who have this covenantal view of Scripture, that's where it gets really difficult. Because then they, 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 they go along with the line of thinking that I've been saying. Their answer to that, where I would say, where did God fundamentally change the nature of the covenant so that children are no longer a part of the covenant in an official capacity, where, where children are not now excluded, where they were included, where did God say that? And the answer in the, Old, in the New Testament is nowhere. But they turn to one passage in Jeremiah 31 and say, when they predicted the, when, when God through his prophet Jeremiah predicted the coming of the new covenant, when in his prophecy it shows beyond a shadow of a doubt that children are no longer to be included. So their, their divine enactment, their, their thus saith the Lord is Jeremiah 31. So I'm going to read Jeremiah 31, the problematic text for us, and I'm going to, I'm going to give you the Baptist position. I'm going, to, I'm going to persuade you that way, away from my view, and then hopefully um, show you why, um, why I still hold to, to, to covenant baptism. Okay, so this is Jeremiah. Before I get there, um, I need to do this. Let me explain a dynamic. Uh, let me give you a chart. Um, That, that, that will help you. We talked about last week that there is a horizontal element to, bap- to baptism, not just a vertical element. It's a horizontal element. And here's the way it works. Baptism is the boundary marker of the people of God. It marks the visible, the visible church, okay? The visible people of God. This, this, this people here, set apart wholly from the rest of the world, is marked off by baptism. So baptism is our entrance into the visible people of God. Within that visible people of God, we we believe in an invisible church. And this is the church from heaven's perspective. So from our perspective, what is the church? Baptized people. From heaven's perspective, the church, the true church is the invisible church. Within this are the people who have been baptized of the heart. Um, So in the Old Testament, the visible people of God were those who have been circumcised. The invisible people of God were those who have been circumcised. The elect, okay? The, 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 the circumcision of the heart. And that within the visible people, they are saved and unsaved, to use just revivalist language. There are saved and unsaved people within the church. And that's the way, nobody disagrees, that's the way it was in the Old Testament Israel. you got the visible people marked by circumcision, the invisible people who have been circumcised the heart, who have embraced their circumcision and believed in Jesus through the prophets and the ceremonies and all that. Okay. Jeremiah 31, and I'm going to read it in just a second. According to Reformed Baptists, Jeremiah 31 eliminates this. And the new covenant is only this. 
The only people who are a part of the church are the authentic believers of Jesus, which is why they don't apply the sign to infants who cannot yet believe. They believe that the the vision given of the new covenant is that this element is eliminated. There is no longer a visible and invisible. The only people who are a part of the church are the true people of God. That's why we only baptize those who believe. Believer's baptism. So that's the big thing, is is this eliminated in the New Testament? If this is not eliminated in the New Testament, then of course our practice makes sense. We receive our children into the visible people of God, hoping and praying, expecting them to become a part of the invisible. Okay, so let me read Jeremiah 31 and show you how they say it eliminates this in the New Covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 are the big passages. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So this promise of the new covenant in the New Testament absolutely is identified um, with the new covenant um, with the coming of Christ. The promise of the new covenant is the covenant that, that Jesus, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. That This, is, this covenant is, is with the coming of Christ. Nobody, nobody disagrees with that. We are in the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. All right, now 33 and 34 are the big passages. For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Everybody in this covenant will know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. So everybody in this covenant has their iniquity forgiven, their sins forgiven. So the, the, the idea is, um, from the Baptist perspective, is that they say the nature of the new covenant will be that everyone in the covenant knows the Lord, that everyone is forgiven of their iniquity and sin, so we don't give entrance into the covenant to anybody unless they know the Lord and have their sins forgiven, that the new covenant purifies the old covenant. That's the argument, and um, to them, that's the thus saith the Lord. To them, they would grant everything I've said, but Jeremiah 31 changes the nature of the new covenant, and that's why we don't admit infants into the covenant. Okay, what do I say to that? Um, Well, you know, without using all of my time to answer that, um, let me just make a few points. Um, Here's the thing we have to understand about prophecy and with the coming of Jesus. One of the things that... um, one of the things that was a surprise about Jesus is that his coming began what we call already not yet. What do we mean by already not yet? Use the kingdom, for example. When Jesus came, when Jesus came, he said the kingdom of God is at hand. So it is. The kingdom of God came with the coming of Jesus. And the kingdom is not yet here in its fullness, Right? So the kingdom, it says in the parable, it's like a mustard seed. It's a small little thing that is growing. And so what we have is this inauguration and then the consummation. With the coming of Jesus, the kingdom was inaugurated. With the return of Jesus, the kingdom will be consummated. So it begins here, and then it grows to its fullness here. 
That's the nature of the prophecies of Jesus. In some senses, all of the prophecies, all of the Old Testament is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. And in some, in some senses, it's not yet complete until he comes again. And the, the age of the church, where we are here in between, is the growth of these things. That's the same way with the new covenant. And it has to be there. With the coming of Jesus, was it the arrival of the new covenant? Absolutely. The, the, with Jesus, there is a new covenant. Is it the fullness, the full manifestation of the new covenant? Not yet. That happens here in consummation. And I believe, with, I mean, it's, and it's, it doesn't take hard to prove it, that Jeremiah 31 is talking about the consummation of the new covenant, the end of the new covenant, where, where it's going to end up, the final outcome of the new covenant. The same with the kingdom. All of the prophecies, in fact, the prophets spoke of Jesus, and when they spoke of him, they were speaking of how this thing's going to turn out with Jesus. When he comes, how's it going to finish? Not here. They were talking here. And it began here, and it will be consummated here. And, and that's not really hard to see when you start to examine the, new, the nature of the new covenant. Um, Jeremiah 31 um, speaks, I believe, to, I need a Bible. I didn't bring a Bible. Who's got a Bible that I can use? Because um, I want to read a few passages to, to just show you that, this, that, 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 that paradigm of the, the visible and invisible church, that that paradigm, it, it, it cannot be over yet. It will be. One day when Jesus returns and separates the sheep from the goats and he purifies his people, that will be the fullness of Jeremiah 31 where indeed every single person will know the Lord from the least to the greatest. All of us will know the Lord. We won't have to say to each other, know the Lord, because we'll all know the Lord. All of us. And all of us will have our sins forgiven and our iniquity forgotten. But we're not there yet. And let me show you that we're not there yet. A few passages, and honestly I could turn to many, but I'll just give you a few. Um, Hebrews... Chapter 10. By the way, these warnings in Hebrew are very difficult if you believe in the perseverance of saints, which Reformed Baptists obviously do, and you believe that Jeremiah 31 is true right now. Um, it's happened in the church. Um, because then you have to ask, well, who in the world is the author of Hebrews talking about in like Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10? We have an answer to that. I don't know if they do. Hebrews 10, 26 is a very chilling, haunting passage. Um, if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses died without mercy on evidence of two or three witnesses. So if you broke the covenant, remember Jeremiah says, it's not going to be like the covenant I made with Moses. It's going to be a new covenant. If you broke the covenant of Moses, in other words, if you were inside... I need to go back to that thing because this is important. All right. If you were in this and rejected this, rejected that, and, and, and rejected apostasy, and you rejected your, your baptism, your circumcision, and rejected the Lord, and chased after Baal, and all that, if you rejected the God of Israel, the punishment was great, he's saying. If you, if you rejected the Old Covenant. Verse 29, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God, His covenant, and has profaned the blood of the covenant, Listen to this language, by which he was sanctified. 
How much more, if, if you think that punishment was bad if you rejected Moses' covenant, how much more is it if you reject the new covenant, the covenant of Jesus, by which you were sanctified? Again, don't think, don't, don't think justification, sanctification, that's sanctified, set apart. Honestly, set apart by baptism. By which, by which you were sanctified, this new covenant. How do, and it's a struggle for Reformed Baptists who believe in the perseverance of saints. How do you, what's your interpretation of that passage? If you believe that, that everybody in the covenant is true and will remain, there's somebody here who has been sanctified and has rejected it. Sanctified and rejected it. We have a category for it. It's a terrible category. It, and, and I feel even bad um, using this to prove a point because th- there, there's, there's a sermon here. There's an exhortation here to our children, honestly who have been sanctified, who have been set apart, who have received the covenant blessings and grew up knowing the story, for them to reject that is a serious, serious thing. And that's what, that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. But we do have a category for that, of people who are sanctified and then reject that covenant. Hebrews 10, um, 26-29. Matthew 13. Matthew 13, 36 through 43. Um, he let the crowds and went in the house, and the disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed are the sons of the kingdom. The sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is close at the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angel, and they will gather out from His kingdom all causes of sins, all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sons of the kingdom of the Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So he's given a picture of the kingdom, and he's saying at the close of the age, I'm going to purify this thing. I'm going to remove the hypocrites from my kingdom. And the ones who are the true, they're going to shine. That sounds like Jeremiah 31, the the consummation of Jeremiah 31. There's going to be a pure, shining kingdom of my people. So the wheats and the tares. Uh, 1 John 2.19. I won't even go there. Um, You can read that. that that they went they were they were not of us because they went out from us. If they had not if they had been of us, they would they wouldn't have gone out for us. But they went out from us. There's people who were among the church who went out and rejected the covenant. Um, the passages in the New Testament that are constantly saying, he, you know, Jeremiah 31 says, "No longer will we have to say to to one another, know the Lord, know the Lord, for we'll all know it. It'll be over. We'll all know the Lord." Well, what do you do with the passage in the New Testament over and over again where they're looking into the church and they're saying, "Make your calling and election sure." Other words, know the Lord. Make sure you know the Lord. Over and over again, we get these promises to the church. We get these exhortations to the church to make their calling election sure. Um, I, I give you a compelling one. Judas. He's a, he's a pretty big indictment against Jeremiah 31. That one of the 12 of the original disciples was a hypocrite. Was a hypocrite. Jeremiah 31 is a, a wonderful promise of the new covenant. But it is a promise of the fullness of the new covenant. The consummation of the new covenant. What is different now is this thing's growing. 
what's different now in, with the coming of Jesus. You know, when you, read, when you read Israel, it's really depressing oftentimes. What you've got is you've got this big nation who, of, of, of God's people, the covenant, and you've got about that, right? Often there's just this little remnant, barely persevering of true Israel. I mean, there's just not many. You've got an entire nation chasing after idols and God keeping for himself a few people to carry this on. What happens in the new covenant is this thing is bigger. And it's true. That's what's happening. Is the, the people who claim to follow God, who have received his sign and entered in, it's, it's a more pure church. And this thing's growing until the fullness of it when actually all those who are a part of this thing are true. And there are no hypocrites, and the church is purified. The irony to me, the irony to me is that the, the revivalist movement has led to an enormous influx of unbelievers that have received the sign of baptism. This is what's so ironic to me, is that it, it, Jeremiah 31 is the picture of what we should do with the covenant, but the revivalist movement, I'll, I'll quote Matt Chandler, who's, who, who's a Reformed Baptist guy, famous Reformed Baptist guy, and I was, I was, I was listening to this interview where he talked about um, he's trying to practice spontaneous baptism at his church because that's what he sees in the New Testament, so we're going to do that. If somebody says to me, they believe, let's baptize you right now. They're not going to examine, you know, and he's saying, man, this is a problem for me because um, he's saying we are dealing with a massive population of people who think they are saved because they have been baptized, I'm constantly having to deconstruct that person's baptism to help them understand that they aren't truly saved just because they had a moment and got baptized. And what's ironic about all this, if you want a covenant purity, a Jeremiah 31 thing, the, the revivalist movement has made this huge. Who isn't baptized and say that they're a Christian? And the true authentic thing is here. So in a sense, it's made, the, it's made it less pure. Whereas, just, just you know... I'm biased, but I think our practice really purifies this thing. You know why? Because it's not, when did you get baptized? It's, do you have faith? Faith is the instrument. Faith is the strength of this thing. We tell our children, you must believe. It's not based upon, did you walk in out? Did you have a moment? Did you get baptized? You must have an active profession of faith. We're trying our best, in my estimation, to purify this thing and get us closer to the consummation of Jeremiah 31. All right, that's my answer, Jeremiah 31. That took forever, intentionally, because that's the big one. Let me fly through some other ones, okay, that, that I don't think will take as long to answer and some good questions that you submitted. Um, all right, why don't children participate in communion? It's a good question, and we get that a lot. Um, if, if there's this correlation between um, circumcision and baptism... well, why is there not why don't we hold the same correlation between the Lord's Supper? And or between the uh, Passover meal and communion, right? You see those connections? Um, children were part of that. This is called pedo communion. We're pedo Baptists, right? We believe that infants should be included. So why aren't infants included in the meal of the church? Um, at first, let me just say this: It must be said that that um, there are those in our denomination who do believe that. Um, it's an exception to the Westminster Confession. The Westminster Confession of Faith does not allow for that. We do not allow for that as a denomination. There are some who take that exception. They're not allowed to practice it. But there are those that take exception. In fact, at our Presbytery meeting uh, this past week, um, I moderated a debate over Beto Communion because there are some ministers in our denomination who do believe this and, and, uh, and want to take an exception and, and all that. So it, first, there are people who do believe that children should 
be admitted to the table before they make a credible profession of faith. But let me answer it because I don't agree with that. Um, first, it must be said that the Passover meal did not... It, it did assume intellectual discernment. It wasn't, it wasn't just can you digest food. It did assume intellectual discernment. At the Passover meal, the children were expected to ask, what does this meal mean? What does this meal mean? And then comprehend the answer of their father. And, and this is intentional, the youngest child asked that question. The one who had the least ability to comprehend was the one at the meal who said, what does this mean? And the father would answer. And it assumes some form of intellectual comprehension, honestly, like our um, Corinthians 11 passage. This says where we are to examine ourselves and discern. But even beyond that, it would, be as, it would be wrong to make a direct correlation between the Passover meal and communion um, like we do with circumcision and baptism. Communion is the fulfillment of all Old Testament meals. Here's, there, there's two categories. There's covenant entrance. How do you enter into the covenant? How, how, what's the right of entrance into the covenant? Um, circumcision in the Old Testament, baptism in the New Testament. That's how you enter into the people of God, the covenant of God. Covenant entrance and then covenant maintenance. Meaning, once you're in, what do you do to maintain that, right? And in the Old Testament, there's a ton of stuff, right? There's a ton of meals. There's a ton of sacrificial system stuff. There's a ton of ceremonies and feasts and all this. Communion is the fulfillment of all that, not just the Lord's Supper. So there's a rite of covenant entrance, and then there's a rite of covenant maintenance. Entrance is pretty straightforward and simple. It's one rite that is done to us. Maintenance is something different. There are many different things Israel did for covenant maintenance, and they are all fulfilled in one act of communion. If we give it to those who do not have faith, um, then we are claiming that um, they... There's, here's why that's important, the covenant maintenance thing. Covenant maintenance in the New Testament is through Jesus Christ through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through its, what covenant maintenance in the New Testament is, is it's a cultivation of the gospel that we believe. That's what's going on in communion. It, 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 it proclaims and it nurtures us with faith, by faith. Um, by faith is the way in which it works. It's not a magic stick. If we give it to those who do not have faith, then we are claiming that the elements of communion work ex operato as in the Roman Catholic Church. They're, honestly, it's, 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 a, it's a magic thing that gives us something without even our comprehension, without even our expectations or our wantings or our longings, without our faith, in other words. And we don't believe the sacraments work that way. That's, we believe it's the presence of God, the nurturing of the gospel received by faith, which is why we command the command from the New Testament is to examine yourself before you partake, because it's a significant thing. You are about to partake of the gospel... It is a significant thing. You must examine yourself before you partake. There is a difference. In other words, that's all I'm trying to say. There's a difference. It's not as clean as Passover meal, Lord's Supper, direct correlation. There is a difference. The Lord's Supper is a fulfillment of all of Old Testament's covenant maintenance. And we know there's a difference because we partake more than annually. Why do we partake more than annually like the Passover meal was an annual feast? Why do we partake more than annually? Why do, as, as honestly as my Pado Baptist, um, my, my Pado communion friends want to practice, they want to practice it more than, they want to practice it weekly, more than we do. Why? 
Because we know it, there's more going on here. It feeds us with the gospel. Therefore, only those who have internalized the gospel are to be fed by it. It does not work ex operato like baptism does. The child has no faith, but we baptize that child as an entrance into the covenant, and we believe it works that way. That the, the child, even though they can't comprehend what's happening to them, it's happening to them. We don't think communion is that way. We don't think the covenant maintenance. We think, in other words, Jeremiah 31 does, does elevate the covenant maintenance um, because it's only those who, um, who want to feed upon their Savior by the gospel. Only those who have internalized the gospel are to be fed by it. So the stakes are raised, we believe, in other words. The stakes are raised with communion, and that bears out um, in, in Paul's admonition um, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 to examine yourself before you partake. Do you believe the child is saved? No. That's an easy one to answer. No, we hope they will never know a day they do not love Jesus. We have a category for that. I pray that almost every time I do a baptism. I think we, we hope they will never know a day they, that they do not love Jesus. But the effect... Here's, 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 maybe this will help a lot of you. The efficacy of baptism is not tied to the moment of baptism. Okay, we believe... In baptism, God speaks. God makes a promise. And that promise is then realized. That promise is embraced by faith. So when a child believes, they own their baptism. When a child stands before the church and confesses Christ, they are owning their baptism that was given to them. It is God making a declaration, and they own that promise in their confession of faith. So we don't believe that, um, that the sign is tied to any moment um, and certainly we do not believe the child is saved through baptism. And then that leads into another good question. That I, I thought this was just an honest question. So how's all this work? It's a good question. Um, I'll, I'll share a story that I share often, and it seems to help people understand it. I'll illustrate it this way. Um, and you've, if you've been around, you've probably heard me illustrate it this way before. Um, I think we know how this works. We, we overcomplicate this way too much. I think we know exactly how all of this works. Um, in, in, in a contextual cultural practice that I use um, is, is with Kentucky basketball. When I go to a hospital to visit a newborn baby, often I find them in a, uh, you know, a UK onesie. They, they dress their kids in Kentucky clothing. Um, now, that's, what is that odd practice all about? Why are they doing that? In essence, um, the family has baptized their child into a story. They have brought their newborn son or daughter into their love affair with the basketball team. I've never, in other words, I've never met a Kentucky fan that didn't want their child to be a Kentucky fan. And um, in a sense, they don't really give them a choice. <laughs> From infancy, they clothe them in the school's colors. They take them to games. They tell them the stories. They teach them the cheers and the chants. In other words, they raise them up within the habits, the practices, the doctrine, the liturgies of this story. I have yet to find a parent who says, I'm going to wait till my child gets old enough to decide for themselves whether they wear these colors. Of course, this eventually happens. The child will grow up and choose to embrace Kentucky as their team or com commit apostasy and choose you know, Louisville or something like that. But that doesn't happen often. That really doesn't happen often. Their, per, their parents' fandom will become personal to them. They will choose to wear the colors for themselves. That's what happened to me. I grew up going to Rupp, um, doing the Kentucky thing, 
Um, it was just a part of my childhood, and then it came, became personal to me in 1992 when Christian Lehner hit that shot, and I cried. <laughs> and I cried. And all of a sudden, all of this childhood liturgies and practices and catechisms became real for me. And all of a sudden, like, this isn't my parents. This is my team that just lost. And I was devastated. The rituals of my childhood had become my personal passion. That's how it typically happens. Typically, our children love what we love. And so most often, when you talk to a fan and say, when did you become a fan of Kentucky? They say, I can't really remember not being a fan. I mean, I kind of kind of remember the moment where I was like, man, I'm, I'm into this. But typically they say, I, I can't remember not being a fan. My parents are a fan. My grandparents are a fan. I grew up that way. And now, too, I love Kentucky. And so the story continues on for another generation. Okay, silly analogy, but it, but it, it, gets, it gets the point across. Every parent takes the symbols that flow out of the stories that are nearest and dearest and places them upon their children without their consent. You're going to love this. This is who you're going to be. And that's right. Baptism is the symbol of our gospel. It is the initiation right into the story of Christianity. It is, it is the story that is most precious to me, 10,000 times more precious than my basketball team. It is a story that I have brought my children into. And I brought them into the Kentucky thing too. But I, more passionately, I have brought them into this story. I will raise them within the story. I will train them within the liturgies of the story. I will enact this story. I will proclaim this story. And I fully expect that my children will one day accept and love this same story. And when that day happens and they internalize it personally, we'll rejoice. I'll throw a party. And so the story will carry on for another generation, just as God promised. That's how we believe the sacraments work. That's how we believe baptism works. Why do you not practice rebaptism? Good question. Um, let me first say that rebaptism never would have been ever considered a possibility until the Anabaptists about 400 years ago. Um, there are instances, of course, of believers' baptism by immersion, but the idea of rebaptism is, would have been honestly heresy for most of history. And here's why. It is God who is speaking in the baptism. Here's the biggest, I think if you could just get this, this category out of your mind, it will really change the way you view baptism. If you could just get the category out of your mind that baptism is your personal declaration, that came out of revivalism. That's not from the Scriptures. That baptism is your declaration. It is you speaking. No, it's not. It's God speaking. God owns the sacrament. God has a word to say. Baptism and in communion, God is saying something. He is speaking. It's the tangible words of God. It's not your words. It's God's words. It is not our personal declaration. It's, it's God's declaration. Therefore, rebaptism is a profound indictment upon the faithfulness of God. God has spoken. He does not need to speak again. We may need to speak again, over and over and over again, which is why so often you see people baptize, 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 baptize. Well, I wasn't sincere that time, but this time I'm really sincere. Well, I wasn't sincere that time. This time I really mean it. Now, now I really mean it. Okay, that's just a Christian being a Christian, growing. God speaks and it's over. He is faithful to his word. His word cannot fail. He promises in baptism and we embrace his words by faith. So to rebaptize honestly is saying God, God needs to say something again. Um, his, his, his other word, he didn't mean it. Now he really means it. Now listen, I'm not accusing, I, I'm not saying that Baptists, obviously Baptists disagree with me on 
They're not, they would never say that, okay? They would never say that. It's just how you view the sacraments, and they view it as our declaration. I view it as God's declaration. And so that's why we don't practice rebaptism, which somebody asks, when do you practice rebaptism? And, um, you know, if they came from a, a liberal church or wh- whatever, um, when do you practice? Basically, this is what we would say. If, if we're willing to say that that, um, that institution that baptized you is not a part of the Church of Christ, then we would rebaptize you. So if you come to us from a Mormon church, we'll rebaptize you because we do not, we do not recognize the Mormon church as a true branch of Christianity. Um, but, but we don't think... See, here's the deal. We don't think the power of the sacrament is found in that minister. So let's say a, a liberal minister baptized you who, who disagrees with a lot of stuff we agree. Okay. The, the, the efficacy of the baptism is not found in the virtue of the person doing the baptism. Please say that's not true because we would never have a good baptism in this church. If it was based upon me and me having my doctrine right and my life right and all this stuff, the efficacy is found in God. We baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. See, again, it's God. It's God speaking. So flawed baptisms and flawed ministers and, and flawed denominations, and people, that's not the point. The point is this one God, one baptism. And so if, 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 uh, if we were to reject a baptism and rebaptize somebody, it would be saying... In a sense, we don't think that that is a true church, true part of Christ's church, and that's a big statement. And uh, so we're very hesitant with that. Um, are, non-baptism, are non-baptized children not children of the covenant? Does that make sense? So if, you, if your children are not baptized, would we say that they are not a part of the covenant? And the answer um, is, of course not. Wait, did I answer that right? Yes, they are, is what I'm trying to say. I wasn't trying to say your kids are not a part. They are. Yes, yes, they are. Um, in the same way that if you ask the Baptist, is an unbaptized believer a Christian? Yes, yes. We don't think that there's something magical about baptism. We do believe that children of believers are children of the covenant. We would highly, highly encourage you to apply the sign. Um, but, you know, if... If I got married and I decided I don't want to wear the ring, I'm still married, okay? We're still in marriage. But it's just put the symbol on, put the sign on um, of the covenant. But I would say this. Are non-baptized children not covenant children? Yes. And you treat them as such. Here's the thing about all this. I have never met a Christian parent, the most ardent Baptist I know, my friend who was here this week, who thinks everything I'm saying is crazy. He treats his children like covenant children. And I tell him that all the time. What is a baby dedication? What is that? What is a baby dedication? It is a consecration. Okay, you don't put water on it. You know what you're doing. You're consecrating. You're setting your child apart. There's something different about our children. Our children pray at night. Pagans don't pray to Jesus at night. Unbelievers don't go to bed praying to Jesus. I mean, some hypocrites, I suppose, do. But catechize. We catechize our children. They sing, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. This I know. You treat them differently. It's not as clean as pagan, Christian, unbeliever, believer. And there's this, this, this nice, clean divide. There's another category here. And it's the category of our children. And we treat them as such. They are children of the covenant 
you treat them as children of the covenant. This week, you know, um, Holt was asking Abby, um, he said, he found out that there are kids in the world who don't believe in Jesus. And this was just amazing to him. And he said, Mommy, we have got to get them to our church so Daddy can tell them about Jesus. <laughs> and Abby said, rightfully, you can tell them about Jesus. And they had this little, you know, here's, here's what it looked like to share the gospel with some of your friends. You can tell them about Jesus. And he practiced it. Now, hold on a second. You ever going to go up to an unbeliever and say, let's, let's do some evangelism training? You ever going to go up to somebody outside the church and say, let me tell you how to tell people about Jesus? So were we wrong to do that with our child? No, because our child is a child of this church. He is a covenant child, and there's something different, which leads to, uh, it's going to have to be the last one. Does God view covenant children differently? Um, yes, he does. He really does. And I'm totally fine saying that. Um, listen, that doesn't diminish his love. Jesus does love the little children, all the children of this world, you know, Red and yellow, black and white, all that. He loves them all. But let's put it this way. Um, I, uh, my, my dad loves children. Um, he's, he's, he, uh, if he saw your child, he would, he would, you know, he would love your child. He, he has affinity for your child. He would think your child's cute. And certainly he would even probably, you know, if your child was in danger, he'd lay down his life for your child. Um, he loves your child. But my father does not love your child like he loves my child. There is something unique about the children of our children. And that doesn't mean you don't love all children. It just means that there is a unique love and affection for the children of our children that God has for our children. And what this also means is that they have more privileges, and you've got to recognize that, um, that our children grow up with more privileges than other children. That they, they grow up with the gospel as their language. With the stories of the Bible as their instinct. They grow up surrounded by the prayers and the worships and the liturgies. They grow up within this story, which is a huge privilege and a huge blessing. And a bigger responsibility. And that's true throughout all of Scripture. That our children have a bigger responsibility. I don't know how it works in God's counsel, but without a doubt, there is something, he, he, too much is given, much is required. He looks at our children and he says, you have been blessed, but you have much bigger responsibility. You know the story. For you to reject the story is far different than for the child who has never heard the story. That's a big deal. It's a big deal, which is what the Hebrews 10 passage is talking about. So, yeah, our children do. They, they have blessings that other children do not have. They are looked upon by God as in a special regard. And they have special, special responsibilities to believe in the gospel. Which is why we as parents and as a church, and it's a good way to end. We as parents and, and, and as a church, we need to be surrounding our covenant children. Holding up this responsibility. Holding up this too much is given, much is required. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Give yourself to Jesus. Embrace the faith of your parents. This is serious, serious business. To reject these blessings that the Lord has bestowed upon you is a serious, serious thing. And we need to be praying for them, and we need to be shepherding them, and we need to be guiding them towards the embrace of their responsibility as 
covenant children. Okay, I got to end. I heard the bell. If there's other questions I did not get to, um, and there are, email me, and, uh, and we, can, we can dialogue about those. Uh, I hope that's helpful. Let me pray for us, and, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll move on to worship. Lord, thank you for these past few weeks. Um, there's so much more to be said, and it could have been said so much better, but um, I trust you with that, and thank you um, for your provisions and your wisdom. I thank you for the spirit of this discussion. I thank you um, for um, people who hold different views, even here at our church, the charity and humility with which we hold our views. Thank you that that spirit is alive at our church, that there's just not dissension and argument over doctrinal things, but there's, there's passion over doctrine and, and, and grace and humility over doctrine. And um, Lord, I just pray that you would use this however you see fit. Um, I thank you that you have entrusted to us your children. And um, Lord, we confess that we have failed at our responsibility. We confess that our responsibility is overwhelming um, to raise up our covenant children. But Lord, um, you are greater than our failures, and we are continuing to trust you that this next generation will love you as every single generation since Abraham has, as you promised, that they will love you and that the next generation will love you, and that this story will continue on. Lord, it's a fearful thing to know that we are one generation away from all of this being gone, but it's a promising thing that you have promised that won't happen, that you will continue to raise up generations who love and serve Jesus Christ. Bless our children. We pray for their salvation in your name. Amen. All right, thank you all so much for your attention during all of this. If there are further questions, don't hesitate to email me.